Chapter Fifteen, Section Two of Children of the Ghetto by Israel Zangwill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Fifteen, The Bene Bris, Part Two. The elders of the synagogue were met in council. He is greater than a prince," said the Schlotten Shamus. If all the princes of the earth were put in one scale, said Mr. Belcovitch, with our Magid Moses on the other, he would outweigh them all. He is worth a hundred of the chief rabbi of England, who has been seen bareheaded. From Moses to Moses there has been none like Moses, said old Mendel Hyams, interrupting the Yiddish with a Hebrew quotation. Oh, no, said the Schlotten Shamus, who was a great stickler for precision, being, as his nickname implied, a master of ceremonies. I can't admit that. Look at my brother Nachman. There was a general laugh at the Schlotten Shamus's bull, the proverb dealing only with Moseses. He has the true gift, observed Frum Karlkammer shaking the flames of his hair pensively, for the letters of his name have the same numerical value as those of the great Moses de Leon. Frum Karlkammer was listened to with respect, for he was an honorary member of the committee, who paid for two seats in a larger congregation, and only worshipped with the Sons of the Covenant on special occasions. The Shalotan Shamus, however, was of a contradictory temperament, a born dissident, upheld by a steady consciousness of highly superior English, the drop of bitter in Belkovitch's presidential cup. He was a long, thin man who towered over the congregation, and was as tall as the bulk of them, even when he was bowing his acknowledgments to his Maker. "'How do you make that out?' he asked Karl Hammer. Moses, of course, adds up the same as Moses, but while the other parts of the Maggid's name make seventy-three, De Leon's makes uh, ninety-one. Ah, that's because you're ignorant of Gematria, said little Karl Kammer, looking up contemptuously at the cantankerous giant. You reckon all the letters of the same system, and you omit to give yourself the license of deleting the ciphers. In philology it is well known that all consonants are interchangeable, and vowels don't count. In gematria any letter may count for anything, and the total may be summed up anyhow. Karkammer was one of the curiosities of the ghetto. In a land of frum men, he was the frumist. He had the very genius of fanaticism. On the Sabbath he spoke nothing but Hebrew, whatever the inconvenience, and however numerous the misunderstandings. And if he perchance paid a visit, he would not perform the work of lifting the knocker. Of course he had his handkerchief girt round his waist to save him from carrying it, but this compromise being general, was not characteristic of Karlkammer, any more than his habit of wearing two gigantic sets of phylacteries, where average piety was content with one 
of moderate size. One of the walls of his room had an unpapered and unpainted scrap in mourning for the fall of Jerusalem. He walked through the streets to synagogue attired in his praying shawl and phylacteries, and knocked three times at the door of God's house when he arrived. On the Day of Atonement he walked in his socks, though heavens fell, wearing his grave-clothes. On this day he remained standing in synagogue from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., with his body bent at an angle of ninety degrees. It was to give him bending space that he hired two seats. On Sukkot, not having any ground whereupon to create a booth by reasons of living in an attic, he knocked a square hole in the ceiling, covered it with branches, through which the free air of heaven played, and hung a quadrangle of sheets from roof to floor. He bore to synagogue the tallest lulov of palm branches that could be procured, and quarrelled with a rival pious for the last place in the floral procession, as being the lowliest and meekest man in Israel, an ethical pedestal equally claimed by his rival. He insisted on bearing a corner of the biers of all the righteous dead. Almost every other day was a fast day for Karl Kammer, and he had a host of supplementary ceremonial observances which are not for the vulgar. Compared with him, Moses Ansel and the ordinary B'nai Bris were mere heathens. He was a man of prodigious distorted mental activity. He had read omnivorously amidst the vast stores of Hebrew literature, was a great authority on Kabbalah, understood astronomy, and still more astrology, was strong on finance, and could argue coherently on any subject outside religion. His letters to the press on specifically Jewish subjects were the most hopeless, involved, incomprehensible, and protracted puzzles ever penned, bristling with Hebrew quotations from the most varying, the most irrelevant, and the most mutually incongruous sources, and peppered with the dates of birth and death of every rabbi mentioned. No one had ever been known to follow one of these argumentations to the bitter end. They were written in good English modified by a few peculiar terms used in senses unspecified by dictionary-makers, in a beautiful hand with the t's uncrossed, but crowned with the side-stroke, so as to avoid the appearance of the symbol of Christianity, and with the dates expressed according to the Hebrew calendar, for Karl Kammer refused to recognize the chronology of the Christian. He made three copies of every letter and each was exactly like the others in every word and every line. His bill for midnight oil must have been extraordinary, for he was a business man and had to earn his living by day. Kept within the limits of sanity by religion without apocalyptic visions, he was saved from predicting the end of the world by mystic calculations, but he used them to prove everything else and fervently believed that endless meanings were deducible 
from the numerical value of biblical words that not a curl at the tail of any letter or any word in any sentence but had its super-subtle significance. The elaborate cipher with which Bacon is alleged to have written Shakespeare's plays was mere child's play compared to the infinite revelations which, in Karl Kammer's belief, the deity left latent in writing the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, and in inspiring the Talmud and the holier treasures of Hebrew literature. Nor were those ideas of his own origination. His was an eclectic philosophy and religionism, of which all the elements were discoverable in old Hebrew books. Scraps of Alexandrian philosophy inextricably blent with Aristotelian, Platonic, mystic. He kept up a copious correspondence with scholars in other countries, and was universally esteemed and pitied. We haven't come to discuss the figures of the Maggid's name, but of his salary, said Mr. Belkovitch, who prided himself on his capacity for conducting public business. I have examined the finances, said Karl Kammer, and I don't see how we can possibly put aside more for our preacher than the pound a week. But he is not satisfied, said Mr. Belkovitch. I don't see why he shouldn't be, said the Shalotten Shamus. A pound a week is luxury for a single man. The sons of the Covenant did not know that the poor, consumptive Maggid sent half his salary to his sisters in Poland to enable them to buy back their husbands from military service. Also, they had vague, unexpressed ideas that he was not mortal, that heaven would look after his larder, that, if the worst came to the worst, he could fall back on Kabbalah and engage himself with the mysteries of food creation. "'I've a wife and family to keep on a pound a week,' grumbled Greenberg, the cousin. Besides being reader, Greenberg blew the horn and killed cattle and circumcised male infants and educated children and discharged the functions of beadle and collector. He spent a great deal of his time in avoiding being drawn into the contending factions of the congregation and in steering equally between Belkovitch and the Shalotten Shamus. The B'nai Bris only gave him fifty a year for all his trouble, but they eked it out by allowing him to be on the committee, where, on the question of a rise in the reader's salary, he was always an ineffective minority of one. His other grievance was that for the high festivals the sons temporarily engaged a finer-voiced reader and advertised him at raised prices to repay themselves out of the surplus congregation. Not only had Greenberg to play second fiddle on these grand occasions, but he had to iterate POM as a sort of musical accompaniment in the pauses of his rival's vocalization. "'You can't compare yourself with the Maggid," 
the Shlotan Shamus reminded him consolingly. There are hundreds of you on the market. There are several more so of the service, which you do not sing half so well as your predecessor. Your horn-blowing cannot compete with freedmen's of the Fashion Street Chavarah, nor can you read the law as quickly and accurately as Prochinsky. I've told you over and over again you confound the air of the Passover Magnificat with the New Year ditto, and that your preliminary flourish in the confession of sin, it goes, ay, 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 he mimicked Greenberg's melody, whereas it should be, ay, 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 ay. Oh, no, interrupted Belkovitch. All the Chazanim I've ever heard of do it. Ay, ay, ay. You are not entitled to speak on this subject, Belkovitch, said the Shlotan Shamus warmly. You are an Amharetz. I have heard every great Chazan in Europe. What was good enough for my father is good enough for me, reported Belkovitch. The shawl he took me to at home had a beautiful chazan, and he always sang it, ay, ay, ay. I don't care what you heard at home. In England, every chazan sings, oy, oy, oy. We can't take our tune from England, said Karl Kammer reprovingly. England is a polluted country by reasons of the reformers whom we were compelled to excommunicate. "'Do you mean to say that my father was an Epicurean?' asked Belkovitch indignantly. "'The tune was as Greenberg sings it, that there are impious Jews who play bareheaded and sit in the synagogue side by side with the women has nothing to do with it.' The reformers did neither of these things, but the ghetto to a man believed they did, and it would have been countenancing their blasphemies to pay a visit to their synagogues and see. It was an extraordinary example of a myth flourishing in the teeth of the facts, and as such should be useful to historians sifting out the evidence of contemporary writers. The dispute thickened, the synagogue hummed with eyes and oys, not in accord. "'Shah!' said the President at last. "'Make an end! Make an end!' "'You see, he knows I'm right,' murmured the Shalotan Shamus to his circle. "'And if you are!' burst forth the impeached Greenberg, who had by this time thought of a retort. "'And if I do sing the Passover Magnificat instead of the New Year, have I not reason, seeing as I have no bread in the house?' With my salary I have Passover all the year round." The Chazan's sally made a good impression on his audience, if not on his salary. It was felt that he had a just grievance, and the conversation was hastily shifted to the original topic. "'We mustn't forget the maggot draws crowds here every Saturday and Sunday afternoon 
said Mendel Hyams. Suppose he goes over to a Chavarah that will pay him more. No, he won't do that, said another of the committee. He will remember that we brought him out of Poland. But we shan't have any room for the audiences soon, said Belkovitch. There are so many outsiders turned away every time that I think we ought to let half the applicants enjoy the first two hours of the sermon and the other half the second two hours. No, no, that would be cruel, said Karl Kammer. He will have to give the Sunday sermons at least in a larger synagogue. My own shawl, the German, will be glad to give him facilities. But what if they want to take him altogether at the higher salary? said Mendel. No, I'm on the committee. I'll see to that, said Karl Kammer reassuringly. Then do you think we shall tell him we can't afford to give him more? asked Belkovitch. There was a murmur of assent with a fainter mingling of dissent. The motion that the Maggid's application be refused was put to the vote and carried by a large majority. It was the fate of the Maggid to be the one subject on which Belkovitch and the Shalotten Shamus agreed. They agreed as to his transcendent merits, and they agreed as to the adequacy of his salary. But he's so weakly, protested Mendel Hyams who was in the minority. He coughs blood. He ought to go to a sunny place for a week, said Belkovitch compassionately. Yes, he must certainly have that, said Karl Kammer. Let us add a rider that although we cannot pay him more a week, he must have a week's holiday in the country. The Charlotten Shamash shall write a letter to Rothschild. Rothschild was a magic name in the ghetto. It stood next to the Almighty's as a redresser of grievances and a friend to the poor. And the Shalotten Shamus made a large part of his income by writing letters to it. He charged Tuppence Halfpenny per letter, for his English vocabulary was larger than any other scribes in the ghetto, and his words were as much longer than theirs as his body. He also filled up printed application forms for soup or Passover cakes, and had a most artistic sense of the proportion of orphans permissible to widows, and a correct instinct for the plausible duration of sickness. The committee agreed Nem Con to the grant of a seaside holiday, and the Charlotten Shamus, with a gratified feeling of importance, waved his tuppence halfpenny. He drew up a letter forthwith, not of course in the names of the sons of the covenant, but in the Maggid's own. He took the magniloquent sentences to the Maggid for signature. He found the Maggid walking up and down Royal Street, waiting for the verdict. The Maggid walked with a stoop that was almost a permanent bow, so that his long black beard reached well down towards his baggy knees. His curved eagle nose was grown thinner, his long coat shinier, his look more haggard, his corkscrew earlocks were matted, and when he spoke 
his voice was a tone more raucous. He wore his high hat, a tall cylinder that reminded one of a weather-beaten turret. The Shalotten Shamus explained briefly what he had done. Yashakoach, may thy strength increase, said the Maggid in the Hebrew formula of gratitude. No, thine is more important, replied the Shalotten Shamus with hilarious heartiness and he proceeded to read the letter as they walked along together, giant and doubled-up wizard. "'But I haven't got a wife and six children,' said the Maggid, for whom one or two phrases stood out intelligible. "'My wife is dead, and I never was blessed with a Kaddish.' Uh, "'It sounds better so,' said the Schlotten Shamus authoritatively. Preachers are expected to have heavy families dependent upon them. It would sound lies if I told the truth." This was an argument after the Maggid's own heart, but it did not quite convince him. "'But they will send and make inquiries,' he murmured. "'Then your family are in Poland. You send your money over there.' "'That is true,' said the Maggid feebly but still it likes me not." "'You leave it to me,' said the Shalotten Shamus impressively. "'A shame-faced man cannot learn, and a passionate man cannot teach,' so said Hillel. "'When you are in the pulpit, I listen to you. When I have my pen in my hand, you listen to me. As the proverb said, if I were a rabbi, the town would burn, but if you were a scribe, the letter would burn. I don't pretend to be a Maggid. Don't you set up to be a letter-writer?" "'Well, but do you think it's honourable?' "'Shema Yisrael!' cried the Schlotten Shamus, spreading out his palms impatiently. "'Haven't I written letters for twenty years?' The Maggid was silenced. He walked on broodingly. "'And what is this place, Burn Mud, I asked to go to?' he inquired. "'Bournemouth,' corrected the other. "'It is a place on the south coast, where all the most aristocratic consumptives go.' "'But it must be very dear,' said the poor Maggid, affrightened. "'Dear?' "'Of course it's dear,' said the Schlotten Shamus pompously. "'But shall we consider expense where your health is concerned?' The Maggid felt so grateful he was almost ashamed to ask whether he could eat kosher there. But the Schlotten Shamus, who had the air of a tall encyclopedia, set his soul at rest on all points. End of chapter 15